invite you to open your Bible this morning then to Luke chapter 22, Luke chapter 22. We're going to begin reading at verse 31. While you're doing that, just I want to invite you again to uh, this evening. We'll be looking at Psalm 36. I've really uh, been impressed and blessed this week by the way these two texts sort of link together. Um, and um, I'm loving preaching through the Psalms. I'm finding uh, things there I just didn't know. And uh, so I want to encourage you to, to come back and, and uh, rejoice in God's Word in Psalm 36 this evening as well. Uh, I also have to say, when I first uh, looked at this text, I was intending to preach quite a bit more, um, probably running through at least 38, because I, I didn't think there would be a lot in verse 31 through 34. And uh, the Lord rebuked me as I was studying this week. This is an incredible text. And so let's give it uh, our attention. This, of course, is uh, Thursday night. Uh, the, the, Jesus has celebrated the Lord's Supper with his disciples. He's about to be arrested. And uh, that's uh, the context where Jesus has this conversation with the disciples and specifically with Simon. Uh, if you, if, if, let's just pick a 24 so we get the sense of what's going on. Verse 24, a dispute rose among them, this is at the table, as to which of them, the disciples, was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And then Jesus says this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. God in heaven, we thank you that you have recorded by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit these beautiful words that we might know our Savior. And I pray, Lord, today then that the Spirit would take these words and use them, um, because these are the words of God, and that, uh, Lord, they accomplish the purposes of God in the power of God. So, Lord, open our eyes that we might see Jesus and love him. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. There's something about the human psyche that loves a good rescue story. Uh, we love uh, hearing uh, stories of dramatic uh, rescues where people are in grave danger, maybe even about to lose their life, and then uh, suddenly and miraculously they are delivered. Uh, I saw a news story just this week of a man uh, by the name of Kalini Tiono, uh, who was a, a tourist up in um, Reno, Nevada area, and um, he is safe after helicopters, uh, helicopter rescuers plucked him from a rock surrounded by swift moving water uh, directly above a 50-foot waterfall. 
uh, in, uh, in that area. He, uh, he had just been out and waiting a little bit, and the, the rivers are, are running very fast because of all the snow melts, and he was caught up in the rapids, um, dragged down the river. He, he, was, he said he was spun around like a, a washing machine, fi- ends up um, finding himself cast on a rock, and the waterfall, 50-foot waterfall, is right in front of him. And so they have a video footage of this man clinging to the rock with the white water rushing past him and then cascading over the edge of the fall. Now, you know that was on every news station, right? That's, that was their, uh, the little clip they showed you at the beginning to keep you watching all the way to the end. You can't, everybody loves a rescue story. Uh, there's a, um, the movie Dunkirk coming out later. It's a magnificent story of the rescue of 330,000 British troops who were uh, surrounded by vastly superior forces on the, the, the beaches there of Dunkirk and um, were miraculously rescued, 330,000 men. Why do we love rescue stories so much? Well, I, I think it's because we sense that we live in a really dangerous world and there are crises uh, abounding, and far too often the crises end in tragedies, and the person is lost, and the life is lost, and the plane goes down, and there's nothing anyone can do, and, and that's the world we live in, and so every time we hear a story where the crisis is averted, where the tragedy is denied, life triumphs, disaster is avoided, we cannot help but celebrate that. Well, what we have here in our text this morning is, is, is the greatest rescue in the history of the world, and, and that is because it's a story of the rescue of the world. Here we see mankind, in a sense, right, in the 12 disciples, and um, they are in grave danger, far greater danger than they realize. They are, they are um, sitting around having a Passover meal with Jesus. They sense there's some danger in the air, but, but uh, Jesus is Jesus. He's, he's going to be the king. He's going to reign over Israel. And so, and so whatever happens, it, it, it will soon be passed. And, and uh, they're, um, they even are at such comfort that they're arguing once again about which one of them is the greatest and who, who's going to get the thrones on the right and on the left side of Jesus. They have no sense that the devil has been to the throne of God the Father and demanded to have them. They have no sense of the incredible spiritual crisis that they are in. But we also have Jesus, the rescuer, the one who places himself between the devil's demands and the sinner's demise and rescues them at the cost of his own life. It's a magnificent story. The, uh, the heading in my ESV Bible, maybe yours as well, says, Jesus foretells Peter's denial. And that is uh, certainly what happens in the text. But there's so much more going on in the story than just Jesus prophesying about something that's going to happen. This isn't a text about prophetic ability. This is primarily a text about who Jesus actually is and what Jesus actually came to do and what was on the line, why it was necessary. This is a story about this, the great crisis of the world, men and women on the verge of plunging to their eternal destruction unless someone intervenes. And that's the story we have in front of us this morning. There's just three points. Again, first we'll be looking at the devil's uh, demand, and then the Savior's deliverance, and then finally Peter's duty. 
The devil's demand, verse 31, Simon, Simon, Jesus says, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. We don't know precisely when these words were spoken. Uh, it's possible it was right after the Lord's Supper or immediately before Jesus' arrest as they're up on the Mount of Olives. But we know that this is a night of cosmic conflict. The devil is at work. He's already entered Judas. And so Judas is on his way to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. The, the soldiers might very well be on their way at this moment to arrest him. Um, these are the things that people could see. But what Jesus does in this text for his disciples, he pulls back the curtain that separates uh, this world from the, uh, the spiritual world, the things that we don't see. He pulls back that curtain and and reveals to his disciples that the devil has demanded to have them in order to destroy them. There's urgency in his voice. Simon, Simon. Uh, when Jesus says something twice, it's, it's the common way of emphasis. So truly, truly, I say to you, Simon, Simon. And he uses Simon's Earthly, earthly name. He doesn't say Peter, uh, which is his God-given name, but his, the name given to him by his mom and his dad, Simon. Because you see, Jesus is addressing Simon in his humanity, a, a mere man with all of his weakness, all of his sinfulness, and as a man in the full reality of his spiritual crisis. Simon is... Adam's son. And as Adam's son, Simon stands in this desperate condition where he, as a sinner, is justly deserving of condemnation and the devil is before the Father's throne demanding to have him. And that's what Jesus says. Satan has demanded to have you. Those have got to be some of the most chilling words in Scripture. Can you imagine if uh, your pastor came to you and, and said, uh, your name, I just want you to know that the Lord has revealed to me that the devil has demanded to have you to drag you to hell. That's chilling. That's chilling. And that's exactly what Jesus says. The devil, the source of all evil in this world, the great dragon, wants to have the disciples. He wants all of them. The you here in this verse is plural. And so he says, Simon, Simon, uh, the, the devil, Satan, has demanded to have all of you. Every single last one of them. And what we have here, you see, is, is a focus of the devil's war with God. This is the, the, center, um, the central conflict in, this, in the spiritual realms. It is, it's clear that the devil went to the Father. You find the same thing in the book of Job where Satan goes to God and, and, um, and, and says, you know, you just kind of go about and, and uh, look at, you know, God says, look at Job. And he says, yeah, the reason Job serves you is because you're so good to him. Take away everything he has and, and he'll deny you. He'll, he'll betray you. He'll throw you aside. And you know the rest of the story. But the devil here does a similar thing. He goes and he demands. Now, there's, there's, there's a note of good news here. Notice that the, the devil has to go to the Father. God is sovereign. The devil is not at loose in the world just kind of doing his thing. 
He has to go and, and, and get permission to engage the disciples with his destructive power. But notice he makes a demand. I had not, I had not noticed that word before I had studied this. And, and the question that sprung to mind is, on what basis can the devil demand to have the disciples? I can imagine him asking, but, but the word here is demand. It's a very strong word. It is, he required. Well, who does he think he is? And, and on what, what basis, with what authority, can the devil demand that these disciples be given to him? Well, the devil would argue that um, they are his by right that these men belong to him. He would argue that when mankind fell into sin, that they became uh, slaves to sin and citizens of his kingdom of darkness. That they were the enemies of God and just objects of God's wrath and uh, deservedly under God's sentence. The, the law says, the soul that sins shall surely die. They belong to him. That would be his argument. Jesus speaks in this same sort of language in John chapter 8 when he, he's talking to the Pharisees and he, and he says to them, you belong to your father, the devil. <clears throat> you belong to him and you want to carry out your father's desires. The reason you do not hear me is that you do not belong to God. You belong to the devils. You see, they're the devil's disciples. The devil knows them by name. He, he, he knows those who are his, and, and he can say, this one is mine, and that one is mine. They, they belong to me. Judas is mine. And now, you see, he comes before the Father, and you can imagine the argument he makes. I demand that you give these men to me. Why? They are no different than Judas. They're no different. They're the same flesh, they're under the same curse, they're Adam's children, they are full of sin. Look at Peter, just look at him, at what he's about to do. Look at how he, he loves himself, they all love themselves, they don't love Jesus. You have said, Father, that the soul that sins shall surely die. They have surely sinned. And so I demand that you honor your word and you give them to me. That would be the argument. Jesus says he desires that to sift them as wheat. It would be a concept that would, it would uh, be immediately grasped by everyone in that agrarian society where they had seen this happen, where, where uh, farmers would, would take sticks and beat on the wheat to separate the kernels from the husk and then throw that wheat in the air or, or blow on it in some manner and the, and the chaff would be blown away. And that's what you, the devil wants to do. He wants to beat on them, to hound them in the fire of suffering and persecution and to reveal, you see, that they are like the chaff. This is Psalm 1, the wicked, the men, the, the, those who stand in the way of sinners and sit in the seat of mockers, they're, they're the chaff that the wind blows away, and the devil wants to show that's what they are, and they deserve to be blown away. Now, his argument has merit. You have to grant it has merit. I, Simon's no different than Judas, not by nature. Judas loves money. Simon loves Approval. He loves affirmation. 
And none of these men are any really different than Judas. They have sinned. And they stand. They do not know this, but they stand on the precipice of eternal destruction. The devil is demanding that it be so. And it would have been perfectly just for the Father to have granted the request were it not for the presence of an interceding Savior. That's all that stood between them and death. And so you have the Savior's deliverance. Verse 2 is one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. But, that great gospel conjunction, but. You find it showing it up in, in all the best places. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God. You were dead in sins, but God. See, against all the demands of the devil, all the, the condemnation of the law, against all the sins that we've committed and all that those sins deserve, Jesus intervenes. There's a, there's a but. But I have prayed for you. Which says that before the throne of God and in the presence of the accusations of the devil, there's raised another voice. There's an opposing desire. And though Jesus does not make demands of the Father, you never see that in, in Jesus' prayer, demands, he prays boldly in his supplication and soundly in his pleas. If you read John 17, you'll see Jesus' prayer, a high priestly prayer in the garden, and, and his prayers are, are so beautifully humble and bold and sound. Father, I, I pray for them. Now, Notice now again, Jesus says, uh, but I have prayed for you, you being singular here. So in a sense, Jesus is saying, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have all of you. He wants to sift all of you as wheat. He's demanded that it be so. But Simon, hear me, I've prayed for you. Why just Simon? Well, because Simon is the leader and because Simon has a particular trial that he must go through. He is the, the specific target as the leader of demonic attack. So notice now what Jesus prays. He does not pray, Simon, I've prayed for you that Satan is denied in his request. He doesn't say, I've prayed that you will not be sifted. What he does do is promise that's exactly what's going to happen, Simon, before the night is over. Before the rooster crows, you're going to deny you knew me, not once, not twice, three times. Simon is going to be tried. He's going to be sifted. And he's going to be revealed as chaff. He will stand in the way of sinners. He will sit in the seat of mockers. That's where he will end up. And then the rooster will crow. In a few hours, he's going to be denying with curses that he ever knew Jesus. So in this moment of crisis, why does Jesus pray this? Notice what he prays. He prays that your faith may not fail. If, if it were you, and you were there, and Jesus had said this was going to happen to you, and you knew that Jesus' prayers are always answered, wouldn't you have begged Jesus 
to pray that you not be sifted? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you have said, Lord, don't let the devil get his way here. Don't, don't let him sift me. That's what I would pray. It's what Jesus teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation and deliver us from the evil one. So why doesn't Jesus pray that for Peter? That Peter will be delivered from the evil one, that he will not be led into temptation. Why wouldn't Jesus ask the Father to keep Simon from this horrifying sin? And the answer is because Jesus loves Peter. And because Jesus is committed to saving Peter. And this is the only way Peter is going to be saved. Peter needs to be sifted because without it, he'll never wake up to spiritual truth. So, you see, Jesus has a purpose here. The devil thinks that he's there um, pleading his purpose. That, that, that he... Um, he that the sifting of Peter is his idea and, and he clearly means it for evil, but, but the text shows us that in the sovereign plan and purpose of God, this is precisely what God has ordained for Peter's eternal good. Peter, you see, will never wake up to the truth of his own sinful nature and he'll never actually see his critical need for Jesus as Messiah and Savior without this. You see the problem with Peter. He's, he's so confident. He's, he's with best of intentions. He's just convinced he's a devoted disciple and helper. So he says, verse 33, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And he meant it. He meant it. He was ready. When the, when the people came, who took the sword and started swinging? But you see... He doesn't see the truth about himself, his weakness. He doesn't understand the truth about his own whoring heart. You see, the truth is, that, is Peter worships at the altar of human affirmation. He needs to be approved and affirmed by people. And so when a young girl links him in the garden to the despised Nazarene, Peter can't help but deny it. It is not a momentary weakness that made Peter deny Jesus. It is a lifelong, deeply rooted idolatry. It's been there all along. And the crisis just now reveals it. It's the same with Judas. He didn't just suddenly make a foolish decision to sell Jesus. He, it just, the crisis exposes the idol. He loves money. Peter loves affirmation. You see, friends, who we, who we actually are underneath all the nice clothes and the external we, exterior that we've carefully constructed, the resume that we've crafted, what you actually love, what I, what, where I actually worship, what I look to for identity and significance and security in the crisis, that will come out. 
And if God is gracious to you, it'll come out in this life, not the life to come. In terms of the idols, you see, if God is gracious, he'll expose you just the way he exposes Peter. Peter loves human approval. And you see, he has to discover this, this idol. He's got to see his, his, his wickedness because until he sees the truth about Simon, he's never going to see the truth about Jesus. He'll never get what Jesus actually came to do. Without this sifting, he's never going to really love Jesus. Not as he should. Not the way a rescued sinner loves his Savior. This is why churches are full of people who, are, who, who, who believe at some deep level that they're basically good people. But they, and, and they believe in Jesus, but they don't really understand Jesus. They believe the gospel, but... But they don't love the, the, the Jesus of the gospel. Not, not the way a rescued person who was on the, the precipice of hell loves the Savior who came and redeemed them. Peter, you see, thought that his relationship with Jesus was, was the helping disciple, the servant, the, the person who did things for Jesus. And churches are full of people like this. Who, who are eager to do things for Jesus. But who can't see the truth about who they actually are and, and what the relationship with Jesus has to be. A, a, a desperate sinner who, is, who has been rescued by nothing but grace. And so Jesus, you see, says, Peter, I prayed that your faith may not fail. Now, what would be the challenge to Peter's faith? Have you ever thought of that? What would be the challenge to his faith? Well, it's the challenge every one of us experiences when we, when we have that moment when we see ourselves in the ugly truth. And then, and then you've got a choice to make. You see, because you, we can say that we, we, we believe that people are sinners, but when you face the truth about you and its, and its ugliness, its, its awful truth, many people lose their faith. And they go to... Blame shifting, justification, I'll try harder. They just, they got to go somewhere. And the reason you see that, that so often they won't go to Jesus is because the other aspect of, of, of faith gets challenged here. And, and the thing that gets challenged about, about Jesus is, do you really believe that there is a loving God in heaven who sent his son to die on a cross to rescue you when you were an enemy, to save you and to forgive you at your wicked, awful, perverse, wicked worst? Do you actually believe that God is willing to meet you there, not after a few days after you've cleaned up, but right there in the moment is the, is the gospel believable to you? And a lot of people just decide it's not. I've talked to them. And they cannot believe in that moment. They cannot believe that God freely forgives and washes them clean. And so they go back to trying their best. See, that's the challenge to Peter's faith. When he discovers that he was nothing like he thought he was when he was when he did exactly what Jesus said he would do and what he promised and vowed he never would do. Jesus says, Simon, I want, I want you to know that I've prayed for you that your faith 
will not fail. He prays for his faith because without faith, it's impossible to please God. And without faith, it's impossible to be justified. Without faith, it's impossible to be united to Christ. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. And so, so you see, because you see what faith does, faith just comes as a helpless beggar to a savior, to a rescuer. It just, it clings. When the man is on the rock in the river, he doesn't say to the rescuer, tell you what, why don't you just come this far and I'll, and I'll, I'll, I'll come to you. I'll, 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 I'll save myself. I just need a little bit of help. When you're, when you're clinging to the rock and the waterfall is right there, all you can do is, is just say, save me. Do you realize, people, how many, how many people are lost right there? And they turn and they go back to Simon's way, trying their best, promising obedience, but never collapsing helpless upon Jesus to be rescued. And so Jesus, he knows what's coming. He knows the challenge to Peter's faith, and he prays, Father, preserve his faith. Don't let his faith fail. He believes, Father. Help thou his unbelief. Against the devil's desires and demands, Jesus raises this intercession, but he does so on vastly better grounds. You see, Jesus has a greater claim to Peter and these disciples. The the, the first claim is that they, the first ground is they actually do belong to Jesus. They don't belong to the devil. They were given to Jesus before the foundation of the world. And so Jesus, in John 17, says in his prayer to the Father, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. I'm not praying for the world, verse 9, but for those whom you have given me. They're not the devils. They're the elect children of God. They belong to Jesus, Romans 1, verse 6 to those called to belong to Jesus Christ. Called to belong to Jesus. So these are Jesus, they're not the devils. And he has furthermore died to satisfy the demands of the law for their sin. This is why he came, you see, to rescue sinners from the just condemnation. Jesus uh, has come to answer the devil's accusations. All of them are true. (laughs) Simon's no different than Judas. Simon has sinned, they all have. There's no difference. But there's just a one distinguishing reality. Peter has a savior, a rescuer. Oh, loving wisdom of our God, when all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. That's what Peter had. A second Adam. And this Adam came and received the beating Peter and the disciples deserved. His back was beaten. He was sifted. Jesus was. His hands were pierced with Roman nails. His body was slaughtered as a sacrifice. His soul was tormented with judgment and divine wrath, all because of our sin and their sin. But on that basis, you see, Jesus can plead the merit then of his sacrifice, the merit of his own body and blood, because he made atonement for their sin. That's the message Jesus has for us and for Peter. I prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And then listen to this. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I love the words of the text. Notice Jesus doesn't say, uh, if you turn again. He says, when. When you've turned, not if. God is overseeing this 
trial, this sifting. In the providence of God, Peter's sin is a key part of his, not just his own salvation, but his future ministry. Now again, the question that leaped out at me as I'm, as I'm reading this is I'm thinking, how in the world can Peter be useful to strengthening the brothers when he himself, in the moment of trial, failed so miserably? He's going to be ministering to a suffering church. He's going to lead a church that is scattered and persecuted. Members of his church are going to be put on trial and then put to death. All the apostles, except John, is going to be, are going to be martyred. And Jesus says, I want you to go and strengthen them when you return. Well, how? What help could Peter be in in that crisis as they're facing their moments of trial. What, what do you say? Don't do what I did? No, that's not what you say. You see, the strengthening that Peter can provide is the conviction and the experience of God's sustaining power, which is exactly what Peter does if you read his first letter. He begins, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then he says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's, that's the strengthening. You are being guarded by God's power through faith, exactly what Jesus prayed for, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You cannot be lost. In the midst of the fire, in the midst of the trial, no matter the crisis, Jesus has prayed for you. Jesus has interceded. Jesus has rescued against all the accusations of the devil. Jesus speaks a better word. He, he pleads the promise of the Father, as he does in John 17. Father, you gave them to me. They're mine. This one is mine. That one is mine. And Father, I gave my life for them. He pleads this fully sufficient merit of his blood I bought that one, Father, and this one. She belongs to me. She's mine. And no matter what the devil might threaten, we've been rescued from the devil. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ who rescued me from all the power of the devil. And so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. That's my comfort. But there's a, not only a great assurance here, but there's, there's, there's a calling here. There's a calling. In light of this glorious salvation, the fact that we cannot be lost, that, that God promises to keep us in the faith, Peter wants, Jesus wants Simon to know that, Peter, uh, Simon, you have a job to do. When, when you've turned back, then strengthen your brothers. Peter's trial is going to serve his ministry because remember how Peter's restored and Jesus now meets Peter after the resurrection and asks Peter those devastating questions. It's just one question, but it gets to the essential issue. Peter, do you love me? Not are you willing to fight for me? Not are you willing to die for me? 
Not even are you willing to serve me. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me the way a man loves who's been rescued from the judgment he deserves? Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then feed my sheep. Then feed my sheep. That's, that's the calling. Friends, in the same way, Jesus has not called you simply to save you, to rescue you. He's called you, and he has sovereignly worked all the details of your life. None of them are by accident. And that includes the sin. That includes the, the abysmal failures. But God has sovereignly woven the strands of your life together so that you can have a ministry that's not about you, but you can confidently say, I promise you, Jesus is sufficient. See, that's Peter's message. He can go to anybody and say, you know, you know who I am. You know my story. You know what I'm capable of. But God is sufficient. Grace is sufficient. God's power is able. I promise you, it's sufficient. That's our story. We go into a world of men and women who are no different from us by nature. No different. I don't care who you meet. I don't care how lost, deluded, perverted. It doesn't matter. We are born, we are the same flesh by nature. We are under the same curse by nature. But we had someone intervene for us. And that someone now calls you and me to to see the crisis of the world, okay? To, to, to have eyes to realize that people are on the verge of plunging to their eternal destruction. But a Savior has come. And we can promise them that if they will turn to him, they will be saved. And we can, we can confidently assure one another, this God will not let you fall. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Thy protector is the Lord. And in that truth, we have a calling to live for him. Friend, um, you're in this story. Because this Jesus came for sinners. And this Jesus came to rescue them. And this Jesus came to make them part of his kingdom and his calling. My question to you simply this morning is, do you know where you are in the story? Are you, are you a one who's been rescued and redeemed, ransomed, restored, healed, reconciled to God? And uh, then, then embrace it and receive it in all of its fullness and all of its glory. And whatever the circumstances of your life are today, if you could believe, believe that, that God has ordained those circumstances because he knows what he's doing, he is pursuing your good and your eternal joy. And if, and, if you, and if you have not yet come to Christ in that way with a saving faith, coming to Jesus, not to serve him, first of all, but to be saved by him, if you've never done that, then would this, let this be the day. Jesus didn't come asking for your help. Jesus Christ came to rescue you. Has he? I'd love to talk to you about it if you'd like, if you'd like to do that. We're about magnificent, eternal things. The gospel is not a cute little story. It's about the great crisis of the world. And by the grace of God, we can in faith say, yes, Lord, you've rescued me. Let's bow in prayer. God in heaven, I thank you for Jesus. Where would we be without Jesus? What an amazing Savior. What astonishing grace. 
Lord, I pray that you would help us to believe it, to believe this, this beautiful Savior. And Lord, help us to believe the grace and the goodness of God that is greater than all of our sin. Help us to believe the power of God that is able to preserve us and to usher us one day into the presence of Jesus and into our inheritance, which is unspotted, unspoiled, and unfading. I pray, Lord God, that we would have a a taste of the glory of what is yet to come and a deep conviction and assurance of the wonder, the goodness of what we already have in Christ. That this would humble us, that this would, Lord, drive away our idols of pleasure, of reputation, our idol of needing to be noticed, our idol of needing to be served, needing to have uh, our ideas or feelings affirmed by other people, that, Lord, we could die to all of that. Because Jesus has noticed us and called us by name and saved us. And we belong to him. Father, I pray that the gospel would go deep. And for any here today, Lord, who don't know Jesus this way, who who maybe love Jesus the way Simon did before the cross, but never the way he did after, I pray, oh God, that you you would direct us into that love. Give us that faith and the joy and the obedience, the delight that flows from it. And Father, we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.